0: For the next few minutes, and in Christ's name, we pray, Amen. So this is our last sermon in uh, Second Peter, um, and if Punum Punam, I think her name is I, I, I might be mispronouncing that, was a convert to Christianity in uh, India from a Hindu background, and uh, she has suffered greatly due to her belief in Christ. She um, when she converted to Christianity, she was beaten and thrown out of her house by her husband and she was no no longer allowed to see her children. She was barred from seeing them ever again. But despite this, and through her uh, faithful prayer life and through choosing every day to to follow Jesus, making that decision, uh, the Lord restored her marriage, and uh, she has moved back in, and she is allowed to now witness to her kids and to her husband. He's even gone to church with her a few times. Poonam reads and studies God's Word every single day. It's like lifeblood to her. She says that Isaiah 41.10 has a special meaning for her. Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you in my righteous right hand. Isn't that a great verse to memorize? It's a good one. But she says, my Bible is everything to me. It is the living word of God. Without it, I can't live. That's a great sort of sentiment, right? First and second Peter uh, were written for very practical purposes. The first deals with the persecution of believers. Uh, The second deals with the false teachers, which we've been talking quite a bit about. Peter uh, dealt with both of these in very theological terms. The persecution of the believers caused Peter to sort of really meditate on the suffering and and the, the death and the resurrection of Christ. And then the false teachers caused him to address the fact that they they would not escape judgment, right? Uh, Judgment not being a popular sentiment these days. But Peter's two letters address five major themes. One, the suffering of Jesus, which led to salvation. Two, our practical response to the knowledge that God will judge our actions at the last judgment. The hope that we have in the return of Jesus. Order in society and in church. And then finally, the rule, the role of scripture has that the role scripture has in providing guidance in our lives. Now, in he begins, Peter begins in chapter three of his book saying, Dear friends of Second Peter, by the way, dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, and the command given by our Lord and Savior uh, through, through the apostles, through your apostles. I'm having a hard time speaking this morning. Anyway, but uh, sort of that term wholesome thinking references orthodoxy or right thinking, living in purity, out of holiness, right? And uh, the preservation and, and the living out of gospel truth in our lives. And again, Peter emphasizes the words of the prophets. We've heard him do that in the past weeks, honing in on the importance of the gospel message that is found in the Scriptures. He begins to acknowledge the words of Christ and even seems to elevate the New Testament apostles' writings, writings to the level of Scripture. If you listen to it, he seemingly refers to Paul's writing in verses 15 and 16 in the same line with Old Testament Scripture when he says this, Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Just as our dear brother Paul also wrote to you with the, with the wisdom that God gave him, he writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. Now, according to Peter, Paul wrote under god's inspiration under the inspiration of the holy spirit and even his writings are being distorted by these other false teachers and we we know that from our studies in the past but the early church was already taking these epistles as authoritatively god's word it seems like that the and it's almost like the new testament is just forming right in front of our eyes the the first of peter's five themes being Christ's suffering, which led to salvation, dictates that his suffering serves as a substitute for sinners. In 1 Peter two, uh, twenty-two through 24, Peter drew images from Isaiah 53 on the sacrificial suffering servant, you know, pictured there. And the sacrifices of the Old Testament constituted, in, a, in essence, the gospel for Israel, pointing the way to communion and to fellowship with God. It was necessary uh, due to God's holiness, since sin demands the payment of death. Now, contrary to popular belief these days, God's central attribute is His holiness, not His love. I mean, yes, God is love. That's true. But His primary attribute is His holiness. If we focus only on His love, which people tend to do today, without, without His holiness... We end up opening up the door to say, you know, well, God wouldn't make me do anything hard. He wouldn't have me to suffer or anything like that because he's so loving, right? Since we've redefined love to mean anything that an individual wants or desires. In Christian witness, we begin with God's holiness, not his love, right? But many preachers and social commentators do the exact opposite these days, and they never get to the holiness part. God is first holy, and when we grasp that, we can give, ourse- give ourselves over to his lordship and experience his love uh, better, actually. The Levitical system, as presented in the Old Testament, re- reveals this. And, and knowing it, we can much better understand and appreciate the gospel as set forth in the New Testament. The one foreshadows the other and is sort of a type of it. The sacrificial system served as a type foreshadowing uh, the death of Christ. Every sacrifice in the Old Testament pointed towards the coming Messiah. And in the symbolic sanctuary services of ancient Israel, the sinner was to bring an animal sacrifice without blemish. We see that in Exodus 12 and 29 and Leviticus 1 and Leviticus 10 and things like that. But every animal sacrificed represented Christ, like John said in his book, Chapter 1, ver- verse 29, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world, talking about Jesus. The animal sacrificed by the, the repentant Israelite was to be without blemish and perfect because it symbolized the, the, the sort of spiritual perfection of Jesus, right? Peter likened Christ to the Lamb without blemish and without spot in 1 Peter 1.19. Jesus is the only one in all of history, who ever lived a sinless life. And as such, his life was acceptable to to his father and his death and perfect sacrifice for sin because he he had done no violence. Like Isaiah 53 verse 9 says, he had done no violence, neither was any deceit found in his mouth. His perfection and death were due to the demands of a holy God. Holiness is important. And due to his sacrifice and subsequent sort of resurrection, God's holy and right wrath was satisfied on that. Payment's been made. A legal transaction has occurred. And we, therefore, receive his righteousness. His perfect record is applied to us since God is also love, right? He did not give us the death that we deserved, but he gave us what we did not deserve, and that is eternal life in Christ, the gospel. And we term this, we used to call it passive righteousness. People are now calling it received righteousness, as opposed to earned or active righteousness. Active righteousness we used before. Now, you know, everybody's changing their terminology like they tend to do, and it's called earned righteousness. And I, I understand why. Received righteousness and earned, and earned righteousness make it it's a little bit more easily grasped right there's nothing we do to earn it that's why it's received righteousness it's not earned we don't earn it right it can only be received which is the good news of the gospel a gift undeserved right we could never live a perfect life but jesus did for us that's the gospel And when a person is convicted and understands what Christ has done for them, they simply repent and believe. They simply repent and believe. You don't invite Jesus into your heart. You repent from your sin, and you believe. You put your trust in Christ. And we receive, therefore, the perfect righteousness of Christ, and then we are sealed for all of eternity by the Holy Spirit, something we cannot lose. And so, when God looks on the repentant sinner, placing their trust in Christ for salvation and in, in Him alone, He now sees on us Jesus' perfect record. His record imputed to us, laid up upon us, because God is both holy and loving, right? And sin has to be paid for. And He loved us enough to pay the price for us. This is a necessity. Since holiness and sin are like oil and water, the two cannot mix, right? And then we have Peter's second theme, our practical response to the knowledge that God will judge our actions at the last judgment. It's a little spooky. And this theme places Christians to be true followers of Christ, right? The the way one should behave and live is critical because Peter links between man's behavior and God's judgment. We see this in 1 Peter 1.17 and 2 Peter 3.11. Christians are called to be holy as God is holy. Leviticus 19, verse 2. And in the Old Testament, the word for holy means set aside or dedicated for holy use, you know, which is to be sanctified, it's to be transformed, to be made into the likeness of Christ. That I, that I when I come to Jesus, I give up my own plans for my own life. And I take on Christ's plans for my life. In Christ, your life is not your own. Right? Never really was, by the way. The concept of holiness isn't abstract in the scriptures. Holiness includes practical obedience to God's law, which relate to the physical being, to to relationships and everything else. In Leviticus, if you want to be holy, then love your, your neighbor as yourself. If you want to be holy, show hospitality to strangers. If you want to be, a holy, be holy, be a person of godly justice. Holiness is so essential that the book of Hebrews says this, without holiness, no one can see God. At every step of, of life, the call to holiness confronts us. In the office in the classroom, at home, in business, with friends, with foreigners, in acts of worship, and in in our family lives. Holiness means also committing myself to obedience to the Great Commission found in Matthew 28, 18 through 20, that as I go about my life, I make disciples of all nations, and that anything standing in the way of my calling in that, the smallest of sin, even in thought, must be crucified, it must be turned away and killed off in me because Christ is not only Savior, but he's also Lord of my life, right? Remember, Peter was confronting heresies, false teachers, and some of which did or would teach that due to the grace found in Jesus that you can live however you want, which would not be evidence of a transformed life at all. The Christian moves from being slaves to sin to slaves of righteousness. Gratitude for what's been done in us through Christ as Savior drives us to obedience to Christ as Lord in our lives. And that actually is where true freedom is found. That is where true freedom is found. It's not doing anything I want. That brings slavery once more. Let's say your dad saved money for you to go to college and he gives uh, that to you as an unmerited favor, a a gift, a father's gift to his child. You know, he's going to pay for all your college. You didn't do anything to earn that. Does he then expect you to go to college and smoke pot and drink and chase women or chase men if you're a female and, uh, and then fail out? No, that's not what he expects at all. Dad wants the best for you, right? That's that's what he wants, to to study, to improve yourself, to gain the skills for life and to give back through a good career in the future. Sometimes a child does fail out, right? Which I did a few times. Uh, Which doesn't negate their relationship with the father. Dad just says, well, I'll just continue to love them and instruct them to find his way, right? Right? But it's more glorifying to the Father to attend school, to respect the gift, and to graduate and to do life well, right? The third theme of Peter discusses discusses is the hope that we have in the return of Jesus. And we do have a hope there, by the way. That will happen. It's a hope, a future reward awaiting us in heaven, a reward which cannot be taken away from us. And he highlights reward and judgment here, right? Believers will receive a future reward while the wicked will be destroyed. That's what scripture teaches. And judgment simply means to justify, right? That Peter says God will just judge us or justify everyone according to their deeds, 1 Peter chapter 1. That God will judge the living and the dead, 1 Peter chapter 4. That judgment will start in the household of God, 1 Peter chapter 4 again. That when we, that the, even we will stand before that judgment of God. Peter Bruner gives comforting words about that. He, he says it this way. I liked how he wrote it. He said, living in every instance in the judgment of God makes our life what it is. Living in the judgment of God is the creative power that makes us what we actually are. We do not make ourselves what we are. God's judgment about us makes, makes, makes what we are. For the judgment of God works very differently from human judgment. I am what God thinks about me. Isn't that a nice statement? God's judgment carries with it the immediate power of execution. God's decree creates what it says. If God decrees he is my beloved child, then that is what I really am. Even when so much seems to speak against it, and those of you taking the Sonship course Tuesday or Thursday nights, you know this language. This is what we're studying. God's judgment about you, he continues, God's judgment about you and me creates the basic foundation for our existence. I live as I live in the judgment of God. I am what I am through the judgment of God. Any weight that I might place on the scale of my life produces only a superficial and temporary swing. But what, God, what God's judgment brings into my life shifts the balance for all time and eternity. That is why the question of what God thinks of me is the most important of all questions. So in Christ, God's judgment of me is actually a good thing because we receive his righteousness. We are rightly related to God the Father once more and God judges us on Christ's record alone. Not on ours. That is great news. It is for me. I know that. God judges me in Christ as his child with full rights as son or daughter in this world. So I am what God thinks about me. As Romans eight seventeen says, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. But Peter's clear, for the unrepentant, for these false teachers, it is a different story, right? Theirs ends in destruction, sadly to say. But it's actually a just and good thing of God to do so. Think about it, if there was a race and, you know, with a prize for everybody who ran the race and finished it, and some of the crowd say, ah, I don't want to race. I'm not going to race. And they just walk away, right? I don't want to do that. Then the other group says, I'll run. I'll run to the end. And they do. And they run their best. And, and they all cross the finish line at different, different times. But before the race started, there was one guy that leaned over to you and said, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I'll see you at the end. I'm going to cheat. And he grabs a taxi off to the side. <laughs> and he you know, goes up to the, the, the finishing line, Right? How would you feel if you got to the end and you ran the whole race and you ran hard and you're only to find all of those people that said they were never going to race in the first place and the guy who cheated sitting there enjoying the same prize? That is not justice. And God is just. And he will not be fooled. You know, I can say I'm a Christian, say I'm a Christian, do I really know? Do I really understand it? According to the fourth theme, order in society and church, the Apostle Peter lived, as we know, in very troubled times, as do we, and learning the divine order in both society and church was fundamental importance then as it is now for us. God's order has been established in society, in marriage, at home, and in relationships, although it's being challenged across the board out there in the world right now which is why we desperately need to grow in our knowledge of Christ as we're called to, being given courage to walk in obedience since those things are in such, under such attack right now. And then finally, fifthly, the theme of Scripture providing guidance. Scripture is the product of divine inspiration, and I fully believe this. Scripture cannot be broken, John chapter 10, verse 35. It's authoritative. And to me, and anybody I think that's thinking, it's the only truly trustworthy thing that we have, divine revelation from outside of ourselves. We don't say, oh, be true to yourself, or live your truth, or or, follow your heart. Those are pop culture sayings of the unrepentant. They really are. Because the, the Christian that understands God's holiness, God's love, the gospel and sin and all this stuff, we understand that our hearts are deceitful. We will even lie to ourselves. that we need God's Word to come to us as outside guidance, speaking into our lives. Christ said, "I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me." John 14:6, right? And what we believe as Christians, and this all needs to be reiterated so strongly right now, that there are not many truths. There are not. There's only Christ as revealed in the Bible. Christ crucified, Christ resurrected. Peter's letters place great emphasis on how Christians should treat each other, right? Apart from just knowing the truth, believers should be living that truth, which we get from Scripture. Scripture. That's how we know it. Well, that's how we know what good life is. Truth is consistent with the heart, the mind, the will and the being of God. Truth makes us true people of God. And it helps us to love others and to be loved ourselves. Given all that Peter said to us, he reminds us of the time in which we live right now and that our future hope and, and of our future hope, and he says this. Above all, You must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come. Scoffers are scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, where is this coming he's promised? Ever since our ancestors died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. You can hear it in that tone, right? But they deliberately forget, he says, that long ago by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water, by water. By these waters, also the world that, of, of that time was del- deluged, I have a hard time saying that word, deluged and destroyed by the, by the same word that the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. We live very much so among scoffers right now, scoffers that deny creation, deny the flood, deny Christ, deny his return. Even Christians deny these things, professing, people that profess to be Christians. But Christians, truly a Christian, You know, convicted of these things, remembers that God's revealed all that we need to know about creation and history and our future, and we take Him at face value. We choose to believe Him over all the other voices out there. And like we said in the past, His story, history, right, is being confirmed consistently over time, even if scoffers will not admit it. The flood was a purging. But the day of the Lord will be complete destruction and recreation. And although that's true, God is still patient because he is full of love. But do not forget this, verse 8, this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. And that's just a great way to say that he's really patient. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Which begs Peter's next question, which puts all of life into perspective if you think about it. He says, since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live, he answers this question, you ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the heavens will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are, now, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. So with biblical assurance, God's people endure, waiting, Christ, awaiting Christ's second coming. Even when others mock and perceive it to be purposeless and aimless, faithful Christian living ena- enables us to await the coming of Christ with patience, with humility, and with endurance. In the Old Testament, the day of the Lord was the future time when God would vindicate His holy name, bringing judgment on the unbelieving, and gather His people into a new kingdom of righteousness and peace. It's actually what the whole world wants, even though they don't get it. That's frustrating. Peter is just reiterating what God has already said through the Old Testament prophets in the past. Joel chapter 2 says, I I will show wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Zephaniah chapter 1, I will bring such distress on all people that they will grope about like those who are blind because they have sinned against the Lord. Sin is serious, right? He continues, their blood will be poured out like dust and their entrails like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. In the fire of his jealousy, the whole earth will be consumed, for he will make a sudden end of all who live on the earth. The scripture is replete. With references to the great day of the Lord. Malachi and Isaiah and Amos and Zephaniah and Obadiah and Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's all over the place. But we don't talk about this in church these days. But remember the day of the Lord is not only judgment. It is also a day of salvation. It is also a day of salvation. All human hearts will be justified in where they stand before God. Those who have denied Christ will get what they've always desired. They've made that choice. Those who have repented and believed in Christ will get what they do not deserve. They never deserved. Some will choose hell for themselves, and some will choose everlasting life in Christ. We were listening. My wife was listening. This is a side note, by the way, slide person. My wife and I were listening to, or she was listening to the third lesson in sonship. And the guy said, you know, what's the one thing that everybody has a complaint about the church? You know, what's the one big complaint everybody has against the church? And, they, and the, in unison, the whole class in front of the speaker said, they're all hypocrites. We are the least hypocritical people on earth because we, we admit our brokenness. We admit our need. That, that cannot be hypocritical. I will tell you, I'm a pastor. This is my life. I do this for a living, right? But I will make, I will sin, I will fall short every single day of my life. I openly say that. I will not always do this well, this life well. And, but I choose Christ and I receive his righteousness, right? There's a difference there. The hope here is the justice of God that all wrongs will be righted in something wonderfully new for all of us who have fallen under the lordship of Jesus. Verse 13 references the new heavens and the new earth, tying us back to the prophecy that is found in Isaiah 65, verse 17, where it says, See, I will create the new heavens and the new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. By the time you get there, and you're standing in that, that place, wherever that is, whatever it looks like, you're not going to worry about any of this. You're going to be so enamored with the glory of God and the holiness of God, you're not going to think about anything in the past. Verses 14, 14 17, and 18 recall the beginning of Second Peter, especially chapter 1, verses 2 and 3, where he says, Grace and peace be yours in abundance through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Everything we need. And he continues in verses 5 through 9, for this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. I could preach 15 sermons right on that little passage. Verse 8, for if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, you will keep from it will keep, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. We have growth to pursue, right? And this leads to Peter's final words, which encompass the, the whole scope of 2 Peter. He says, so then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, Make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. Verse 17, therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned, be on your guard so that you may not be carried away by the error of the lawless and fall from your secure position. In other words, don't follow those false teachers, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be glory now and forever. Amen. This is so important right now because stats about what Christians believe anymore are so far off from a biblical worldview, it is amazing. There are so many false teachers out there. And I would bet you if I interviewed the crowd and we talked about who who it is that we listen to out there, I would say that some of them are false teachers. You need to start thinking. Kevin DeYoung summarizes it like this. He says, avoid these false teachers telling you anything goes. Make every effort to be godly. Grow in grace. Paul said it this way in Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll end here. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. how do you how do you communicate all this it it is only by your spirit that we grasp any of this it is only by your spirit where we are convicted and brought into that joyous kingdom that is yours i ask for humble hearts i ask for a pursuit of holiness a pursuit of purity. I ask that you would set us aside for your glory, that you would use us, that you would grow us in grace, that you would make us effective and productive in our calling right now. In Christ's name we pray, amen.